For the last seven weeks, we have been in this series looking at the grace and love and redemption of this woman, this foreigner in the city of Bethlehem named Ruth and this amazing love story between her and a man by the name of Boaz. Now, if you haven't been with us, I want to do just a quick uh, short review of where we've been in chapter 2. In chapter 2 of Ruth, we find ourselves looking at the life of Ruth as she's entered into the city of Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she heads out to glean to get food in a field that is owned by a man by the name of Boaz. And on that amazing day, she learns of Boaz's love and grace that he shows upon her by giving her food and giving her an ability to continue to harvest in his fields. Well, last week we came to the part of the text where it tells us that Ruth heads home. She heads home and she's all excited. She's got a whole bag full of of the harvest grain. She's got a leftover meal from Boaz that had been for dinner. And she takes it home to give to her mother-in-law, Naomi. Now, last week we learned that we are given the same responsibility. Just like Ruth, we have been shown grace by our heavenly Boaz who then in turn we must go and share that good news with one another. Well, our text brings us this morning to the end of Ruth chapter 2, and we see part 2 in this conversation that these two women have with one another. So I would ask that you would turn to Ruth chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, and I'm going to ask that you stand as you turn there as we read uh, the the word of the Lord this morning. Ruth chapter 2, verses 21 through 23. This is what it says. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, He even said to me, speaking of Boaz, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's spend a moment in prayer asking for God's blessing of His Word this morning. Father God, we come before You and we come to the end of chapter 2 in this amazing book. So Father, we ask that You would open our minds, You would open our hearts to what You have to teach us this morning. For we are a fallible people. And we stand face to face with your infallible word of God. And we thank you for that. And so, Lord, we ask that you would open our minds, you would open our hearts to the truths that are revealed in these amazing verses this morning. And that, Lord, this ancient story would bring timeless uh, thoughts and perspectives to our lives. That it would change who we are, that we would never be the same because of what we've seen and heard today. So, Father, I pray that my thoughts would not be my own, but they would be yours as we open your word as your people this morning. May this be a time of enrichment, a time of blessing and encouragement, even a time where we're even chastised, Lord, in the ways that we ought not to be living. So, Lord, we pray that you would do all those things through the gift of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. It seems that in American Christian culture today that we seek for the life that God blesses. 
Not too long ago, I was in a Christian bookstore and I was looking at all the books that they had headlined, if you will, the Christian bestsellers. And I was in some ways a little bit grieved by what I saw. Titles like the following, Your Best Life Now, Christians, Find Your Sweet Spot, The Life That God Blesses, Four Keys to a Blessed Life, and the list goes on. And I began to ask the question, what does that say about who we are as Christians? It seems that we have a desire, and it's a noble one, but a desire to have an amazing walk with Jesus Christ. But as I began to look at the table of contents to some of these books, it looked as if they were quick fixes. Four steps here, nine keys to this, four formulas to that. And if you do these things, then your walk with Jesus would be A+. It would be perfect. And it seems that we find ourselves, like much of our culture, that we want quick fixes. We want the gimmicks and the fanciful strategies that we believe will change our lives in some amazing way. Sadly, just like with fad diets, just like with financial pyramid schemes, the desired results that we are advertised that we will receive become like a mirage in the desert of life. As Christians, we find ourselves like an explorer in pursuit of a hidden city of treasure. And yet we find ourselves, after searching long and far, we find ourselves empty-handed and hungry for even more. Now, Scripture tells us that the life that God blesses is not a quick fix. In fact, I was reading in uh, a book called Systematic Theology by Wayne Groom. I'm, I'm talking, this is a fat book. This is what this guy says. And I, I found it late last night. I think it's amazing. It says, The New Testament does not suggest any shortcuts to the Christian life by which we grow to be like Christ. But the New Testament simply encourages us repeatedly to give ourselves to old-fashioned, time-honored means of Bible reading and meditation, prayer, worship, witnessing, Christian fellowship, and self-discipline and self-control. You know, we all desire that God would give us a life that shows His blessing. But if we fall prey to just doing a couple quick things, then we will never find that life that God truly blesses. So where is that answer found? Where do we find it? I want you to turn for a moment. Keep your hand in the book of Ruth and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Because I know that there's people here this morning, I know even for my own life, that there is a desire to take my Christian walk to another level. And so many times we go and we find this book or we find this fad that seems to make it clear on how we're to do it. But look at what Jesus says in John 15, 1 through 11. This is what he says to his disciples and us today. He says, I am the vine, the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that does, that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. So remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Now if anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Verse 9 says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. What a picture. Eleven verses that I believe give the heavenly formula, if you will. I don't even like using that word because there are no other formulas but this. Eleven verses that say, do you want joy? If you want victory over temptation, it's going to involve abiding. If you're going to want spiritual productivity, it is going to involve remaining in Christ. If you want God-honoring relationships, then it's going to involve you being close to Jesus. He says, if you want answered prayer, that means you remain in me. It involves abiding and it brings forth a life that is full of joy unspeakable. Now without becoming too simplistic, I want to contend this morning that every question and every anxious thought that you have can be answered with the simple fact that you begin to abide in Christ. Because when we begin to do that, things become so much clearer for us. But sadly in our world today, again, we look for those easy fixes. I found this old hymn that I want to read the words to because I believe they impact the way we live our lives as Christians. It says, Take time to be holy. Speak often with thy Lord. Abide in Him always and feed on His Word. Make friends of God's children. Help those who are weak, forgetting in nothing His blessings we seek. Take time to be holy. The world rushes on. Spend much time in secret with Jesus alone. By looking to Jesus, like Him we shall be. Thy friends in thy conduct, His likeness they'll see. Take time to be holy. Let Him be thy guide. And run not before Him, whatever betides. In joy or in sorrow, still follow the Lord, and looking to Jesus, still trust in His Word. Take time to be holy. Be calm in thy soul. Each thought and each motive beneath His control. Thus led by His Spirit to fountains of love, thou soon shall be fitted for service above. You know, this New Testament principle of abiding begins by us taking time. Abiding doesn't begin, or um, doesn't take place in a fast-paced life. It is a life that slows down and says, Jesus, I want to be like you, and therefore I am going to sit under your teaching and sit under who you are to become more like you. But how do we find that? There's a New Testament principle that I believe is spelled out in our passage in the book of Ruth this morning. Because Ruth observes three things this morning in our text that fits into this picture of abiding. So let's look at them this morning. Number one, as we abide in God's field of dreams, we are given a continual reminder of God's grace. 
We are given a continual reminder of God's grace. As we find ourselves living for Christ and find ourselves following after Christ, the first thing we're going to be given is a reminder of God's grace. Look at verse 21 of Ruth 2. This is what our text says. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Boaz even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Now in verses 17 through 20, if you want to go back a little bit, Ruth is telling Naomi all about what happened on that amazing day in Boaz's field. She comes home, she's probably all excited and says, Look at this amazing harvest that I've been given. I've been shown amazing kindness. I've been given food. But in verse 21, we see that the good news only gets better. Boaz invites Ruth to continue to glean in the fields till the harvest is done. The picture here is that this kindness that Boaz shows isn't a one-day kind of kindness. It's not a short-lived grace, but it is a grace and a kindness that will continue to bless these two widows in their time of need. In fact, the harvest that is being talked about would take two to three months to finish. So they would have time to be under this season of grace. Now imagine for a moment that Ruth goes to bed that night. I'm sure her heart is racing. She's had a wonderful day. She's beginning to review all that's happened. And then the next morning she wakes up. And what does she do? Well, she's been invited to go and glean in Boaz's field. So she gets up and she finds herself heading out to Boaz's field again. Well, I will suspect with you this morning that what happened is she began to be reminded of the grace that Boaz showed her. Have you ever had an awesome experience happen in your life? Maybe years ago, and the thought or the smell of some aroma or someone saying a certain phrase brings you back to that remembrance of that awesome day. You begin to remember with great love and affection what transpired on that amazing day. Each and every day that Ruth got up and began to glean again would be a constant reminder that someone has shown grace to her. But that's not the only remembrance that we see. Look at what we see in the text. First of all, we learn that Ruth was reminded of her position. She was reminded of her position. Excuse me. Ruth tells Naomi that Boaz has invited her to stay with the workers. He says, stay with my workers. Now this is true because even though she has been shown an amazing amount of grace... She still is in a position of working in a master's field. Her, the grace that's been shown Ruth has not allowed her to supersede the role of the other workers. She's been given the job of harvesting. Now, she's not harvesting for Boaz like all the other workers are, but she's harvesting for herself. But her position is clear. Go, and what you can do is glean in my field. She's not given the job of, hey, go and oversee my whole operation, or go and hang out in my home and just sit there and someone will glean for you. Her position is clear. She is to be working and gleaning for herself. The second thing we see is that she's reminded of her parameters. Boaz tells her in uh, Ruth chapter 2, verse 22, I'm sorry, Naomi says this. She says to Ruth that it is good for you to go with the girls. Now, two things we put together. Number one, we know that Boaz says, stay in my fields. And number two, she is told by her mother that she is to stay with the girls, remain close to the girls. This forms, if you will, a fence in Ruth's life. 
What she begins to say is, all right, I am to glean. Here's my operation. This is what I'm to do. Now, where am I to go? Boaz says, stay in my field. Don't find yourself in another field, but stay here. And then he also says, don't just stay here by yourself, which we'll talk about in a moment. But he says, stay with the girls. But then we see a third element to this reminder, and that is a reminder of our protection. We see that she's been given a position. She's working in the field. We see that she's been given parameters. She has to stay in that field. But why is she to do that? Naomi says, you stay by the girls because in anyone else's field, you may be harmed. This is huge. We talked some months, uh, about a month ago, about the importance of Ruth staying in Boaz's field. Why? Because if she was to go out into any other field, it would open her up to opportunities of being harmed by assault or, or some sort of abuse. So Ruth's mom says, hey, stay by those girls. There is protection in numbers. Well, how does that all fit within our uh, lives today? We, as we enter into God's field of dreams, as we abide in Christ, something happens. And that something is that we are continually reminded of God's grace. It is my hope and it is my desire that as you wake up every morning, as you open the Word of God and remain in Him and pray, that one of the reminders of God's Word that it teaches us is that we were sinners saved by grace. That each and every day we have the problem, the opportunity to live and to make this thing called life happen. That it is our desire and it is our purpose to say, you know what, I couldn't do it without Jesus Christ. I can't. Our reminder is, is that we are nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Ruth headed to that field. She would have been reminded that it was not because of her gleaning ability that she was invited. It was not because of her heritage that she was invited. It was not because of her mom and dad that she was invited to that field. But it was because of the grace of Boaz. Let me tell you something. When we come to the Word of God and we come to our times of prayer, it is not because of our mom and dad. It's not because of the good works that we've done. It's not because of uh, something we've said or what we've been a part of or who we hang out with. But it is all about God's grace. And as we come to that time of study and that time of opportunity to worship our Savior by remaining and abiding in Him, then what should be reminded to us is this idea of God's grace. But it gives us more than just a reminder. Understand this, it reminds us of our position. We have been shown uh, that uh, an amazing amount of grace. An amazing amount of grace. Our very being here declares the grace of God. Because amidst a holy God, He could not deal with our sin because He was so holy and we are so set apart from that holiness. But God, because of His love, died on the cross and He gave us eternal life through His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, what does that do for us? Well, we are changed in our position. But what happens is is we must understand that that position doesn't change what we are called to do. What is Ruth called to do? Again, she has shown more grace than probably anybody in the field, but she is still called to be a worker. We are called heirs with Christ, yes, but we are also the workers in the Lord's vineyard. It gives us parameters. We are called just because of grace. We can't be like the people in Romans chapter 6 that say, hey, let sin abound, or let's, let us sin so grace may abound. God has given parameters. Just because we have been revealed and shown the grace of God does not mean we can live any way we want. 
There are a lot of people that don't like the doctrine of eternal security. And one of the reasons why opponents don't like the doctrine of eternal security is they would say it is an opportunity for us to do whatever we want and stamp a doctrine and say, well, God covers it. Let me tell you something. Grace is not license to sin. And we are given parameters. God says, you want to live a life that I bless? Then stay in my field. And if you get out of my field, then you're going to open yourself up to Satan and his temptations and his ploys. But as long as you stay in my field, there is protection that will be made. We need to be reminded as we enter into our times with our Lord and Savior that we need to be reminded of His grace. Don't ever think it's because you've done something or because of who you are, but always remember that His grace leads us and guides us to our position, our parameters, and it shows us our protection. There's a second thing we see this morning. The second thing we see this morning is that... Uh, uh, let's see here. I've got to find my page here. That we are uh, given a community of relationships. As we abide in Christ, as we live our lives for Christ, we are given a community of relationships. Look at verse 22. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with his girls, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. Now Boaz tells Ruth, when it comes to gleaning, Ruth, when you come to glean, hey, don't do it by yourself. There's a group of ladies over here. We call them the Ladies Service Committee. They're over here, and I want you to go connect with them before you go out in the fields. Don't do this thing by yourself. And that's what she does. Now, we learned a couple weeks ago that this would be an aspect of grace that Boaz gives to Ruth. Why? Because Ruth, remember, comes from a place called Moab. She comes with her mother-in-law to a place she's never been before, Bethlehem. She knows nobody else but her mother-in-law. And here Boaz says, I'm not only going to give you food and show you favor, but I'm also going to give you friends. And here she goes and she says, here, you go with them. What an opportunity for her to have a community of relationships. No doubt this word community is one that we use often in our worlds today. One thing I've been blown away with, if you were to look at the titles of or names of churches in the last 20 years in America, I would say the one word that is used more than any other word is not Bible, it's not even maybe church, but it's the word community. We have a lot of churches in our area that have used the term community. And it seems that that is a word that brings us together. It's a word that says, hey, we're about other people. And I'll tell you, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with putting in the name of your church the word community. That's a God-given, Bible-mandated phrase that we should have in what we do. In fact, I don't know if Keith knew it, but he kept saying it during his welcome this morning. We are a community of believers. This word community makes us feel not so alone, but it makes us feel a part of something bigger than ourselves. But what is this word community? We use it a lot, and what a lot of people say is, well, what is community? And community is what we do out after the service. We hold a cup of coffee and we have community. The old-fashioned word for community is fellowship. We're just going to hang out. We're going to have a good time. We're going to build community. Well, I'll tell you what. Community is not just hanging out with a cup of coffee. It's something more than that. But what do we see with Ruth and her community? There's a couple things that we see. First of all, community is found 
It is found when people have the same purpose. When people have the same purpose. Look at verse 21. Then Ruth said, I'm sorry, Ruth the Moabitess said, He even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. What is the job of those in Boaz's field? Is it to hang out and have a, 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 a softball team, a work softball team? Is it to hang out and just spend time together interacting with one another? Is it playing cards? None of that is said. What does it say? The purpose of Boaz's workers is to finish harvesting. They've got the same job. They've got the same goal in mind. They're told that they're not to cut it, uh, to stop it until it's done. Now this is true of us today as well. If we want community, if you're out looking for community, you can try to find community with just a group of people. Let's say I was to grab a group of people off the street and say, you are going to be my community. But here I am, and I'm a driven individual. I want to accomplish a lot of things. Now, if I've pulled together a group of people that want to do nothing more than play video games and hang out at the McDonald's, then we're not going to have community, are we? We're going to have different goals. We're going to have different plans. And that is going to affect the way we interact with one another. Because we're heading in two different directions. The second thing we see about community, and then I want to apply it to the church, the second thing we see about community is that it is found when people serve the same person, when they're all serving the same person. This passage in Ruth makes it clear that Boaz is the guy in charge. There's nobody else in charge. It's Boaz. Look at all the possessive pronouns that are spoken about Boaz. He says, my workers. He speaks about my grain. Naomi says something about his girls. Then they're called the servant girls of Boaz. Boaz is the leader in this text. He is the human equivalent of the boss in our text here in Ruth. Now, community is built around, whether it's in the workplace or in the family, community can only be born out of what? People knowing their place and their role in a larger gathering of people. You cannot have community in the home if the children think that they're in charge. You cannot have community in the workplace if your boss is allowing things to run amok and the employees are all rising up fighting for one another. In this text, we see no fighting. We see Boaz in charge and the workers given the task to do specific roles within his field. The final thing we see is that community is found when people live in close proximity. When they're in close proximity. Look at what it says in verse 23. So Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz. If you underline, underline that word or that phrase, stayed close. It is the Hebrew word debak. And the word literally means to stick like glue. It's it's to cleave to, to cling to. And that Ruth is not given the job to go harvest in Boaz's field and to hang out with the women, but the women are 25, 30 feet ahead of me, and I'm just going to hang out in the back. I'm going to lag behind. Boaz says you stay close to them. Get close. Stick to them like glue. Well, how does that work within our lives today? 
Again, I'm taking New Testament principles and, and using them to, uh, or I'm sorry, Old Testament story to apply to New Testament principles. How does the New Testament principle of community fit into this story? couple quick things. If we want to be a church of community, and I believe that is what we long to be. We all want to be a church that welcomes new people in, but doesn't just welcome them in, but brings them in and makes them a part of who we are, a part of a family. Our vision statement here at the church, we desire to be a family, not a corporation, not some mega ministry. We want to be a family. And if that's a family of two, so be it. If it's a family of 200, so be it. If it's a family of 2,000, if the Lord tarries, then that's wonderful. We just want to be known as a family. But what does that mean? To be a community, to be a family, something must take place. First of all, we must all have the same purpose. We will not have community in this place. If one of you says, I want to go this way, and another says, I want to go this way, and you have some of the elders saying, I want to go that way, some of the deacons saying, we're going to go this way, and we're all going for what we want. I will tell you, that doesn't bring forth community, it brings forth dysfunction and pain. And yet many churches that have the name community on them find themselves not living up to the title that they have because of fighting that is going on in the midst. Why is that? Because many times we're not serving the same person. You will know your purpose when you view who you're following after. You want to know if you're following Jesus Christ, look to what your goals are. Look to what your plans are. Some years ago when I was... uh, Working with one of my employees, one of, one of my employees said uh, that they thought they could do a better job than I could. And what they began to do is began to cre- uh, create havoc in the workplace at the catering office because this person thought that they could be the boss. And so what they began to do is began to say, you know what, Tim isn't very good at this, Tim isn't very good at that. And I'll be honest with you, some people began to believe them. And it was amazing to find out that their purpose began to change. Why? Because they began to follow someone else. So who is the person we are to follow? If we want to be a biblical community, then we follow Jesus Christ. He's the boss. And when we begin to follow ourselves or someone else instead of Christ, and that's a very subtle thing, because a lot of us will speak, especially as leaders, will speak as if we're speaking on behalf of God. But we need to see what is their goals, what are their purposes. If they say they serve God, if Tim says he serves God, then he's not going to tell me to do something that is contrary to God's Word. So what do we have happen? We have to be a community that follows Jesus Christ. Not one or another of the elders, not one of the deacons, not your small group leader. We follow Jesus Christ. The third thing we see is that community is born when we live in close proximity, when we stick like glue to one another. Now again, we live in a very different culture than that. Churches today are set up for one purpose. That is to bring people in, sit them down, have them sing a couple songs, have them bow in prayer, maybe have a testimony, then get a person to get up and speak, and then what do we do? Have a great day. We'll see you next week. And people get up and they head out the door and what do they say? I did church today. I was a part of community. That's not community. Community is a group of people that long to be with one another, who stick like glue to one another, and who are actively involved in the details of life with one another. 
If you come to church just to hear me preach or just to hear the worship team sing some songs, you're coming to church for the wrong reasons. You may be coming for a good show, but it's not Christian community. Christian community is about interacting with different people, engaging with them, and living life together. Are you living life? If you call this place your home, your Christian community, are you able to see characteristics that say, yes, I am living life together? One thing I used to love, there's a lot of things in my, uh, my childhood church that I did not like. But one thing I loved, they didn't always have uh, the right doctrine. They didn't always have, uh, I shouldn't say the right doctrine, but this were maybe more legalistic on some doctrines than they should have been. Maybe they didn't always have the most upbeat music. Maybe the messages weren't always that relevant. But one thing I remember about my childhood church is that they had to kick people out of it to lock the doors. Why? Because people wanted to interact with one another. And they say, you know what? We're going to take off. The church has got to be closed up. So we're going to take it down to the diner down the street. I remember with great affection getting in the van or getting in the van with my parents and they're saying, you know, we're going to go hang out with so and so and so and so and so and so over at the diner. We're going to have a cup of coffee and we would spend hours there in someone's home. This church has a wonderful opportunity for community when it comes to things like Sunday school class and small groups. We've got a whole bunch more people here today than we did a year ago. And our job is, if we want to be a church that is known for godly community, biblical community, then it means that we have to go get out of our comfort zone and look around. And I want you to look around for just a quick moment. Look around to this church. Are there people... Now, this is a very light Sunday for us because of the holiday, I'm sure. But are there people you don't know here? Your job as a Christian isn't just to go and say, well, I'm going to Village Bible Church to go hang out with my friends and that's all. No, because if that's the case, then Ruth would have never been brought into the Israelite family. She would have never been shown grace. And there are a lot of Ruths here this morning. For whatever reason, they have found themselves here in this community of grace. And our job is to bring them in to fellowship. It's not the staff's job. It's not to make sure that Keith gets Carol and Missy to send out letters that say, hey, we missed you when you were here on Sunday. That's not the job of the staff. The job of the staff is to equip you so that you will go out and be able to create community. That means inviting people to your home, engaging in people in Sunday school classes and small groups, finding someone who's standing in the corner who looks like they're not talking to anybody and bringing them in to fellowship. The greatest hindrance that this church will have in the years to come will not be its godly teaching, nor will it be uh, adequate ministries or building size. Our biggest issue that we will face as a church in the next five years is how will we be able to bring new people into community? Because if we're unable to do that, people long for community and they will walk in and they will walk right back out. And we'll sit there and say, well, a lot of new people, but it doesn't seem like we're growing. And I will tell you, that answer will come that we are not living the life of community that God has called us to be. Ruth learns this in the field of Boaz. The final thing we see this morning is that as we abide, as we remain in Christ, something else comes into place. And that is is that we learn that our job or our task is complete when the reaping is done. Boaz invites Ruth 
not again for a day, but he uh, gives her an opportunity to be there for a predetermined amount of time. Look at verse 21. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Boaz said to me, stay with my workers until they finish. She has been given an amount of time until they finish. She knows that her work is not done and that the invitation is open until she sees all the barley and all the wheat harvested. Now, what does that tell us? First of all, it tells us that this work of reaping is a continual work. Write that down in your outlines. It is a continual work. What we see is is this word until... Commentators say that this is telling us that it is not to stop, if you will, until it's done. That there is a predetermined amount of time that they are to work. Now the next thing we see is that it is not only a continual work, but it's a commendable work. Look at verse 22. Naomi doesn't come to Ruth and say, hey, this idea of gleaning in Boaz's field, that's no good. Don't do that. Look at what she says in verse 22. This would be good for you. And she says, not only good for you to be with the girls, but also to harvest in a field peace and mercy. This is good. You have found someone who you have found favor. Your prayer has been answered. And it is a commendable work for you to go and be a part of that harvest. Finally, we see that it is a work that displays a settled confidence. The text tells us in verse 23, it finishes with these words, and it took me a long time to understand what the author may have intended with these words. And Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. Why does the author say that? I believe that what it is telling us is, is as you look at uh, Jewish tradition and history, if you were invited to glean for a long period of time, what you were invited to do was not only glean, but to be taken care of. That means that Ruth had an invitation not only to glean, but to now be invited to be with Boaz, to stay with the women. But each and every day she got up and she would glean, and then she would head back home and live with her mother, Naomi. How does all that fit in? Let me put it together for us as believers. Again, paralleling. We have been given an opportunity to remain in Christ. Jesus tells his disciples in John chapter 14, one chapter before he talks about remaining and abiding, he says, hey, I'm going and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back. And the idea here that we see is, is that until he comes back, We have been given the job of working in his harvest fields. Now, when does that reaping get done? Does that reaping get done when we grow tired? No. Does that reaping get done if we say, you know what, I don't want to do it anymore. The the yields in the field aren't as good as I hoped, or the opposition in these fields are difficult. No, that's not when the reaping is done. It is a continual work. In fact, it wasn't done until the harvest is done. Jewish history tells us that when the harvest was done, the landowner would come out to his workers and announce with a loud voice that harvest is over, let us come and celebrate. What a beautiful parallel of our Lord and Savior. Because when the harvest is done, our Savior will come and with a loud voice, he's going to cry and say, come on home, my workers, the harvest is done. And I will tell you, because of that, as we remain in Christ, it is a commendable work. There is no greater thing that the child of God can do than to serve their master. There's nothing better. Why? 
Because it's a work that shows a settled confidence. What does that mean for us today? A settled confidence. Here Ruth was shown grace by Boaz. But but Ruth was not in the possession of Boaz. Meaning she wasn't in his home. We too are not in the home of our father. We have been bought. We have been shown an amazing amount of grace. But what has God said? Your job isn't done until the gleaning is over. And so what do we do? We continue on meeting the needs of those around us. What did Ruth do? She would go and she would be given grace by Boaz and then she would come home just as we learned last week and she would give it to someone else. What are we called to do? As we live here until our Father calls us home, we are called to receive grace, not to keep it for ourselves, but to give it to those in need. It's a continual work. It's a commendable work. And it's a work that shows confidence. Why? Because we can go out to the world and we can say, I know one day my Savior will call me home. But until then, I trust in His words that each and every day that I need grace, He will give it. And every day that I receive grace, I'm not just going to hold it for myself, but I'm going to give it to my neighbors, my friends, my co-workers, and I'm going to give it to those in need. Jesus was so emphatic about this nature of abiding that I believe that he put together the very uh, observance that we're about to celebrate, and that is communion. Because as I looked at our text this week, the elders said, Tim, it's your time to uh, do communion. And... Um, We knew we were going to be a little tight on time. We've got uh, Jonathan Schuster and his family, our missionaries from Ireland here. We want to give them plenty of time. So I began to sit there and said, how can I connect these two things? Maybe I can't. One's New Testament, one's Old Testament. How does that all form together? Ruth abided in the field of Boaz, the field of grace. We too are reminded of the field of grace that we have been called to be a part of. And as that result of abiding, there are things that take place. First of all, we're reminded of God's grace. Second of all, we are given a company of uh, a community of relationships. And thirdly, uh, we are given uh, the opportunity to have a part in a harvest that will be complete when the reaping is done. Now, how does that fit within our text or into our observance of communion today? Jesus establishes communion just a couple chapters after uh, he speaks of abiding. At that last supper, he begins to articulate to them that they need to remain in him. And this practice should be done. Why? Communion is done because it's a reminder of God's grace. When we enter into the communion table, as we enter into the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of the past work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. When we take the bread and the cup, we are reminded that a lamb was slain. We are reminded that because the lamb, the reason the lamb was slain was because of our sin and our defilement because of that sin. But we're reminded also of the present work of Jesus Christ. That not only did he die in the past, but he continues to intercede on our behalf, making us to be more like him. But then communion also tells us that we rejoice in an upcoming uh, promise. And that is he'll come back. It is a reminder of God's grace that is seen in the past, the present, and the future. The second thing we see is community is done within a community of relationships. You don't have community, or I'm sorry, communion by yourself. 
This isn't something you just do, you know, hey, uh, Cubs game's over and I'm feeling a little extra holy right now. I'm going to go grab some grape juice and I'm going to grab a cracker and I'm going to have communion. No, we come together where two or three are gathered and we celebrate what the Lord has done. And it happens within a relationship, a community of people. We don't do this at the Kiwanis group. We don't do this at the Lions Club. Communion is for people who have the same purpose, glorifying the name of Jesus Christ, who serve the same person, Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, and who desire in close proximity. We don't just do this and walk out. We do this as a reminder, not only of what Christ has done, but what God has called you and I to do for one another. We're to hold one another accountable. We're to love one another. We're to take care of one another. Isn't it ironic that when Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, one of the first things he is involved in doing is washing the disciples' feet? What a reminder for us that because even though we have been shown an amazing amount of grace, that we must always remember our position. And that as Jesus, who had a great position, lowered himself and took on the nature of a servant. And finally we see that we are reminded that the harvest isn't done. Jesus says, as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And you know what? Communion is to be continual. It never says that it's supposed to stop in the 5th or 6th century, that it was supposed to end. He says, you keep doing this until I come, when the harvest is done. And it reminds us that our work is not yet complete. We're going to hear in a couple moments from Jonathan, who's going to tell us that our work in Ireland probably hasn't even begun yet. That God has so much in store in the next years to come of what He wants to see happen with the gospel ministry in Ireland. Communion is a time that we are reminded But it's a reminder for us to do one thing, and that is to be continually remaining in Christ. So what are we told to do? Paul tells us. Listen to what Paul's words are. In fact, if you will, some of you have closed your Bibles. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to ask as we uh, look at this text, I'm going to ask the men to come forward uh, to uh, be ready to serve here in a moment. The story or the things that are transpiring in the time of the Corinth church and the reason why there's so much trouble in the Corinthian church at that time is that people weren't remaining. They weren't abiding in Christ. So what was happening? There were factions in that church. There were people who were trampling the grace of God in that church because of their grievous sin. And as a result of that, Paul admonishes the people in 1 Corinthians to live their lives differently and to live their lives in what God has called them to do. If you don't remain in Christ, three results will happen. Number one, it will lead to factions in and around you. Number two, it will lead you to grievous sin. And number three, it will lead you to not know what the good and pleasing will of God is. So what do we do? As Christians, Jesus says, don't fall prey to that. Commune together. 
Don't fall prey. Begin to examine yourselves. Listen to what Paul says in verse, 20, uh, verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we've judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So what do we do, Paul? What do we do? We examine our abiding. We begin to say, am I remaining in Christ? Paul says, before you even enter into this time, let's make sure that we're following the right person. I want to take a couple moments and have us examine our hearts this morning. And I want us to begin to ask some questions this morning about who we are. I want us to ask questions about what we're thinking about. This is a sober time. This is a time where we begin to reflect. And I want you to ask the question, if Jesus is so uh, focused in on my abiding, am I doing that? Am I following my Savior? Or am I living for myself? Am I pursuing Christ-like love to people around me? Am I living in light of what Christ has done for me? The Bible says that when we come to this table, an examination takes place. We begin to look at our lives. And as Paul said, are there factions? Is there sin? And are your goals and your plans all mixed up because you're following everything else but Christ? Let's take a couple moments and ask the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts to answer those questions for us. And as He answers them with an affirmative or a denial to those things, then receive them and say, Yes, Lord, I confess. Or thank You, Lord, for keeping me from that. And let's examine our time before communion. Father God, we come before you and we are an unfaithful people who serve an incredibly faithful God. And Lord, today as we come and we observe what you have done, not only in the past and in history, but what you're doing today and what you will do tomorrow and the years to come, we are reminded that you've called us to a life that involves a relationship with your Son. And Lord, we've turned to each of our own ways. We have followed self instead of a Savior. 
They've pursued sin instead of a life of sanctification. And so, Lord, before we even come to this table, we follow your command to examine our hearts. Father, I pray that you would not find a perfect people, but you would find a repentant people. That you would find people that are willing to confess their sin so that you can be faithful in cleansing us of all unrighteousness. So Lord, as we enter into this time, as we celebrate what you've done and what you are doing, I pray that you will find a people that have examined their hearts well, have put aside the sin that so easily entangles, and are willing to run with all their hearts the race that is marked out before them. Lord, I pray for my own issues, my own dysfunctions, my own pride and sin. And I confess that I don't always follow you. That the things that I desire to do, I don't do. And the things that I know that I ought not to be doing, I do, as the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans. So, Lord, we ask, because we know we will sin once again, for your strength to say no to sin and say no to ungodliness and the power to say yes to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You are the main guest at this table, and we glory in the grace that you've shown us. For you are the only God, the only Lord and Savior, who can take away the sins of the world. We love you, and we thank you, and give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. She